But after singing a song like that, we could almost call for the benediction, huh? Wow. It is so much rich gospel truth. person of Jesus Christ is one of the most profound mysteries of the Christian faith. For 400 years, the early church struggled to understand and to define what the scriptures taught with regard to the person of the God-man. Along the way, As they struggled together, a number of different heresies cropped up. These heresies tended to go in one of two directions. They either placed undue emphasis upon the humanity of Christ or undue emphasis upon the deity of Christ. And in the process of overemphasizing one or the other, they presented a distorted and soul-damning view of the Savior. Two of the most well-known heresies were called Nestorianism. Nestorianism. And Nestorianism basically taught that, that Jesus was two persons in one body. Two persons in one body. The opposite heresy was called the monophysite heresy, monophysite heresy, and that heresy taught that the human nature of Christ was absorbed into the divine nature, that it was God who was born, God suffered, God was crucified, and God died. In fact, the monophysites had a a little saying about this. They said Christ's human nature was lost in the divine as a drop of honey which falls into the sea dissolves into it. Nestorianism on one hand, the monophysite heresy on the other. The church was being bounced back and forth and in danger of being ruptured. By the 5th century A.D., the leaders of the various churches under the urging of the emperor decided it was time to come together and resolve this problem once and for all. They needed a unified understanding of what the Scriptures taught with regard to the God-man. And so, there was a council called. A council. And one of the leading lights of that council was the patriarch of the church in Rome, whose name was Leo I. And Leo gave theological direction to this council. And what he said was that God, the God-man Christ, has two natures, one human and divine 
together in one person. Two natures, one person. This council, by the way, is known as the Council of Chalcedon. The Chalcedonian Creed came from this council in AD 451. This understanding of the two natures of Christ in one person has never been able to be improved upon even to this day. It is our bedrock statement of orthodoxy. Two natures brought together by what is called a hypostatic union. A hypostatic union. And what Leo said was these natures in one person, this is what the council ultimately came out with, these two natures in one person are without confusion, without change, without division, or without separation. It was a direct attempt to correct both errors of Nestorianism and the monophysite heresy. These four words, the without confusion, without separation, without division, without change, are what is called the four fences of Chalcedon. These are the four fences of Chalcedon. And and they don't really describe how it is that two natures exist in one person. And it is something, as I say, that is of a profound mystery. For you and I, we are one nature in one person. But in Christ, it is two natures in one person. And so the Chalcedonian formulation doesn't really describe the how can that be. What it does is it it establishes the limits beyond which it's not safe to go in speculation about how that could be. Over the last few years, I have become increasingly aware and appreciative of the humanity of Jesus Christ. I have been thinking about it on a somewhat regular basis. And I've been thinking that we've become a little unbalanced in how we understand the person of Christ. What I mean by that is that in our righteous zeal to defend the the deity of Jesus Christ, that we have to a certain degree underestimated his humanity. We've overemphasized one to the other. And what what I mean by that is, is that when we read the Gospels and, and we, li- we read about how Jesus lived a life singularly devoted to God the Father, I think we're too quick to attribute His obedience to the Father to His divine nature. We, we think about Him in a way that we don't think about ourselves. We assume him to have resources available to him that you and I don't have available to ourselves, not available to us. And in the process of doing that, I think what we do is we lose sight of Jesus as a role model for what it means to live a spirit-filled life. I think there's a very practical implication and outworking. In other words... I think when we think about Jesus Christ and his his life, what we tend to assume is that he walked through life about a foot off the ground. He just sort of floated through life. 
And when he came to a particularly difficult place or obstacle in life, then he would hit the God switch and kind of vault over it. You know, he could always just tap into his divine nature and and just vault over the difficulties of life and, and continue his floating along. And you and I, we don't have that ability, do we? We, we don't float in life. We, we sort of slog our way through life. And when it comes to a particularly difficult place in our life, we don't have access to, to our God nature. We're not able to hit the God switch and, you know, what was that old video game? Mario Brothers or something. You know, you just kind of wink and you're right over it. Now, I don't think we would say that about Jesus. But I suspect that to a degree we would think that. We would think that. If that's true, if that's true in the way we think about Jesus Christ, then we lose a sense of what the Bible means when it, when it says in Hebrews 4.15 that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. See, if he can hit the God switch, if he just floats through life about a foot off the ground, then how can he sympathize with me? How can he sympathize with you? How can he be tempted in all things and yet without sin? If he has access to spiritual power that you and I don't have access to. So there are, the implications of this are, are very real and they're very, very practical. Open your Bibles up to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13, page 950. Nine, I believe it is, in the Pew Bible. We are engaged in a very serious study of the Gospel of Matthew. Someone asked me, how long will it take to go through Matthew? I said, I hope that it takes until the rapture before we get to chapter 24. And then I don't have to deal with the Olivet Discourse. <laughs> right? So we'll see. But we're engaged in a pretty serious study of Matthew's gospel. And as we are working our way through Matthew's gospel, I want to do it with, with, a, with a focus, at least a, a good, clear view of the humanity of Christ in all of this. Not just a, a focus on his divinity, which is certainly on vivid display. But I want to look at his humanity as well. And the passage before us this morning in, in verses 13 and following is really a, a tremendous passage. It's a, it's a wonderful and, and clear apologetic for the doctrine of the Trinity, to be sure. Right? The Father speaks out from heaven. The, the Son is baptized. The Spirit of God descends as a dove. We see the three persons of the Godhead here, all in this compact little vignette. But I don't want to, I don't want to focus on it as, as just an apologetic for the Trinity. 
certainly that. I want to look at it as how does it advance Matthew's argument for, the, for Jesus being the Messiah, offering the kingdom to Israel, who rejected that kingdom, and then Jesus began and his work among the remnant. How does Matthew draw that to get out of this passage? And I want to see his humanity in the passage. That's sort of the twin goals. So we'll do that beginning this morning. It'll take us at least two weeks to get through these couple of verses here. And I want to do it by looking at some details from the passage. So there are three details from Jesus' baptism. This is Matthew's account of the baptism of Christ. Three details here we want to draw out so that we might understand the significance of the crucial event. It's a crucial event. Now, the baptism of Jesus Christ was a major event in his life. It was a major event. It was a turning point event for him. All four Gospels refer to his baptism. All four gospel writers are interested in it. Beyond that, the book of Acts refers to it a couple of times. This is no small event in the life of the Savior. It is the beginning of his public ministry. The beginning of his public ministry. For example, in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, just listen there. Peter is speaking, and and this is after... The resurrection and Judas has hung himself and and the church is is looking or the the disciples rather are looking to replace Judas and and so they need to find someone to replace Judas so the the number is complete at twelve again and so there needs to be qualifications who can serve with us as a as a disciple as a witness for Jesus Christ and so Peter speaks in Acts chapter one verses twenty one and twenty two and it kind of lays out those criteria. And it's very interesting. Peter says it's, it's therefore necessary that of the men, so there are a number of candidates that are with them, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. So we need to find somebody who has been there from the beginning. have been with us all the way through, from the beginning all the way through to the resurrection. And they will join us in being his witness. And notice that Peter marks it with the baptism of John. This is the beginning point. You had to be there for that. You had to be there for that. So let's look at a couple of the details. We'll get to two of the three this morning. Let's look at a couple of the details that come out of this account. The first is in verse 13. The first detail, a really simple detail. He arrived from Galilee. First detail. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Stop there. The first detail that I want to look at with you and to think with you about is this very simple statement that Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, 
coming to John to be baptized by him. Now, Matthew ends chapter 2. Just turn back there to be refreshed a bit. He ends chapter 2 with Joseph taking his young wife, Mary, and his young son from Egypt back into Israel and taking them to Galilee, to to the city of Nazareth, and there they set up residence. That's the place where they're going to live. Now we get to verse 13 of chapter 3. The narrative, as it were, of the life of account of Christ picks up the account again here. And now Jesus is leaving Galilee and he is coming to John to be baptized by him. Now a considerable amount of time has passed from the close of chapter 2 to the opening here in verse 13. Luke's gospel fills in a few details for us. A couple of the missing details come from Luke's gospel. For example, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 3 and in verse 23 that Jesus was about 30 years old by this time. So when Matthew closes chapter 2, Jesus is a young child who goes with his parents to live in Nazareth of Galilee. Now we, we find him again, verse 13, chapter 3, and he's about 30 years old. So, as I say, a fair amount of time has passed by. The only recorded incident that we have for all of those mysterious years is again supplied by Luke. And Luke records for us in in his gospel a little vignette, a little incident out of the life of Christ. And and what Luke records for us is is he tells us that, that when Jesus was about 12 years old, he accompanied his parents to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Passover. And in all the hustle and bustle of the Passover with with the many worshipers coming in from all over the place, the city just absolutely swelled in in terms of population. And Jesus was there, and they would come in in a caravan, and many family members, including extended family members. And there, in and about the hustle and bustle, the family leaves to go back to Galilee, and they leave Jesus behind. They leave Jesus behind. Now, I've left one of my kids at church before. It, I understand how it happens. Okay? And some of you have left your kids here, too. If you leave them more than three days, we give them away. Okay? So you have to come and get them. But in the hustle and the bustle of the, of the caravan leaving to go back north again, undoubtedly his parents, his parents assumed he was with You know, his mother assumed he was with an uncle and his father assumed he was with an aunt or whatever, and they left him. They lost the Messiah. (laughs) It's not a good idea to lose the Messiah. So they turn around, right, and they make their way back to find him. By the time they day's trip out, they figure out they lost him, a day's trip back, and then a day's searching the city. Three days. Three days to find him. And they find him in the temple, it says. And he is preoccupied there in the temple. And he is involved in theological dialogue with the teachers of Israel. That's where they find him. And his, his teacher, the teachers there are amazed at this 12-year-old kid. It, 
It says in Luke 2, 47, that, that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, what I want to suggest to you is this is not because he is God, the God-man. They are, they are amazed that a 12-year-old boy has such a good grasp of the scriptures. That's what they're amazed with. And it is the product of his serious contemplation of the word of God. One 12 years old normally doesn't display such a familiarity with the Word of God. But Jesus did. He tells his parents, I don't know why you had such a hard time finding me. Right? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He desired fellowship with God the Father. And so that's where they found him. Now Luke closes out that little, that little vignette and And he summarizes the next 18 years of Jesus' life, a life of quiet, a life of seclusion, with a very simple statement in Luke 2.52. He just notes that Jesus continued to grow in his knowledge of the Scriptures, which pleased both God and man. And that's it. That's all we know. That's all we know. Now Matthew picks it up here again, chapter 3, verse 13. And Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, about 30 years old, after a relative life of seclusion, spent pondering the scriptures and living in submission to his authorities, his human earthly authorities. And he comes to John, it says, verse 13, to be baptized by him. But this indicates to us that there was a very clear purpose that Jesus had for leaving Galilee and traveling approximately the 70 miles necessary to come to where John was baptizing so that he might be baptized. He had a purpose in mind. I would suggest to you he had one thing in his mind. One driving purpose. And that purpose was to be obedient to to the word of God that had come to the nation of Israel through the prophet John. God had called John, Luke chapter 3, verse 2 indicates, to a very specific ministry. And so, as an accredited prophet of God who was calling the people to come to him, Jesus comes to him. It's likely... When Jesus left Galilee to go to John and to be baptized, that he expected to return home again. In fact, he would never go home again. He would never go home again. He would never go back to the old way of life. Something changes for him. I say this because the Gospels are, I believe, pretty clear. That immediately following his baptism, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit of God. He is anointed by the Spirit of God. He hears the heavenly voice, the voice of God the Father. And then he is thrust out by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Chapter 4, verse 1. Matthew translates it, or gives us the account, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 
12 uses a different verb and says Jesus was impelled by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. He was pushed, he was driven out into the wilderness. Following his return from his desert experience, Jesus spent some time gathering a few preliminary disciples, according to John's Gospel, John 1, 29 to 51. And then after that, he attends a wedding in in Cana of Galilee and there performs his first public miracle. After that, he briefly returns back home to Nazareth, but there he finds a less than friendly welcome, Luke tells us. Luke's gospel, chapter 4, beginning in verse 16 and following. I call it less than friendly because by the time it's over, they want to throw him off a cliff. And so he withdraws he leaves and he now establishes his base of operations in Capernaum according to Luke chapter 4 verse 31 Matthew chapter 4 verse 13 you see it leaving Nazareth he came and settled in Capernaum so as I said Jesus never really can go back home again he leaves to come down to be baptized by John but he never really goes back home he makes one trip it turns out very badly. They, they try to kill him and he withdraws. His life dramatically changes. That's the point. I think it's safe to say that when, when Jesus left Galilee to go and to be baptized by John, that he didn't know beforehand that this event would be the means by which God the Father would remove the veil of obscurity under which he had been hiding, as it were, and introduce him now as the king of Israel. I don't think when he left that he put a sign in the window of the carpenter's shop Gone off to be Messiah. You know, business closed, gone off to be Messiah. I think it's far more likely there was a a sign in the window that said, gone for three weeks. Gone for three weeks. He never comes home again. That whole life is gone. It's behind him. Something new has come upon him. I have a quote from a good friend of mine and Bible teacher, Dr. Doug Bookman. He writes, I conceive the baptism of Jesus to be not the first act of his public ministry, but the last act of his private life. I like that statement. He thinks of it not as the first act of his public ministry, but as the last act of his private life. As it were, the last thing he would do as a private citizen. Because everything's going to change from this point forward. Everything changes. What it means is that the the long years of preparation are now over. The working away in obscurity for 30 years have come to an end. All that time brooding over the scriptures, pondering what the word of God says with regard to its prefiguring and foretelling of his suffering and his glory to follow. All those years of 
of keenly observing human life in its, in its day-to-day hardships, sorrow, temptations, and joys. He has now been prepared. He has been prepared to save His people from their sins. If you like, He has been in seminary for more than 25 years, getting ready, getting ready. What can we learn from this example? What do we make of all of this? Just interesting? Those are interesting tidbits. I hadn't really thought about Jesus that way before. Thanks for loading up my, you know, gospel revolver with a few more bullets. Is that it? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we can learn something very significant by by pondering this reality. What we can learn is, is that in God's providence, He is never early and never late. Never early, never late. Now that's practical. That's practical. I mean, think of it with me this way. If in the days of his flesh, Messiah had to, according to Hebrews 5a, learn obedience from the things which he suffered, then why should our life be any different? That's practical, isn't it? Reading the scriptures, pondering the scriptures, seeking to understand all that the word of God said about him. I mean, Luke is clear. He, he's growing in his, in his grace and knowledge of God. See, so came to understand more and more. Isaiah 53, this is me. The glory is to follow. Laboring away in a family business in a backwater community. All the while wondering, when? If I am the one, when? I think we can relate to that, can't we? Have you ever had to wait on God? I mean, really wait on God? Your Savior knows what it means to wait. To wait on God. Why did Jesus come to be baptized anyway? Why did Jesus come to be baptized? The answer to that question brings us to the second detail. The second detail. He argued with John. That's the detail I want to draw out. He argued with John. Verse 14. He arrived to be baptized by him. That was his purpose in going there. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and and do you come to me? An amazing paradox. I mean, John's the one who said in verse 11, right? That the strong one is coming. I'm not not fit to perform the lowest, most menial of of slave tasks, which is to remove his dirty sandals. This is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
And you come to me to be baptized. Now, apparently when Jesus came to John, he, he did so in private. That's, that seems to be the indication of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. He didn't come when the crowds were there. It seems as though he came somewhat privately, perhaps late in the day after the rest of the crowds are gone. It is likely, at least in my opinion, that this is the first time that, that Jesus and John have seen each other for a very long time. I mean, after all, John's residence was where? It was in the wilderness of Judea. Jesus' residence was in the backwater of Galilee. It's not likely, at least for some, and I think considerable period of time, that they had laid eyes on each other. Now, evidently, John had some awareness of Jesus, right? And his future role as, as Messiah, because... John says to him here in verse 14, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So John clearly sees Jesus as his superior. How? I don't know. Perhaps John just remembers the stories his mother told him about about Mary's child. Maybe they knew each other as boys, and maybe they didn't. The scripture is... Very dark in regard to that. Doesn't doesn't say. But whatever John knew, his, his understanding wasn't full and it wasn't complete. We can tell that from John's gospel. I'll turn you over there to John chapter 1. Just look at it real quick with me. John 1, beginning in verse 29. Hope we don't have a lot of announcements today because i got a lot of things. John 1, 29. Okay, the next day, he, that is John, saw Jesus coming to him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is after Jesus, or John had already baptized him. And by the way, I, I won't take the time to develop it, but I believe that this is after Jesus has returned from the 40 days in the desert. So some, some period of time has, has elapsed here. This is, the, this is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, John said, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, it's all past tense here, and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So evidently there was, there was some question in John's mind about who the one w- would be that he was announcing the imminent arrival of. And John was told by the Spirit of God that the the one whom you see the Spirit descending on as the dove, that's the one. That's the one. Now back to this question. Why was Jesus baptized? It is a very difficult question. A very difficult question. And a good number of Bible teachers have proposed a, a long list of possible solutions to a difficult question. For example, 
Some said that Jesus was baptized in order to identify himself with the godly remnant of Israel. He was baptized in order to identify himself with the godly remnant of Israel. Others, that Jesus was baptized as a messianic anointing. A messianic anointing. Still others, Jesus was baptized as a consecration to the priesthood. It would consecrate him to the priesthood. Still others, Jesus was baptized as an act of submission to the Mosaic law. Some of these are better than others, by the way. Some write that Jesus was baptized in order to picture his death and resurrection. And finally, still others, and I've just given you a few. I'm sure there's more than this. Jesus was baptized in order to identify himself with sinners as their substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? He who knew no sin was made sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So the substitutionary atonement. That that was what the baptism was all about. Now there are a number of good ideas in these proposed solutions and a number of valid statements. But I think, I think they are missing the point, if I can say it that way. I think what they're mostly talking about is the result of his baptism and not the reason for his baptism. They're confusing the result with the reason. The reason Jesus was baptized is given to us in verse 15. Jesus answered and said to him, that is to John, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, then he permitted him. Now, the word righteousness, it carries the idea of, of doing all that God requires. All that God requires is in, carried within that term righteousness. Beyond that, Jesus says it is, it is fitting, that is, it is becoming, it is proper. So we can say that what Jesus re- responds to, to John is he says that it's the right thing to do for us to do all that God requires. So permit it at this time. Jesus is the God-man. He is fully divine. He is fully human. In his humanity, he was a, a deeply pious man. A deeply pious man. He was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. He was spiritually sensitive to the will of God. Therefore, when God's prophet John came preaching and baptizing, Jesus did what any devoted Jew would do. He came out and submitted himself to the ordinances of God and man. Permitted at this time, he says. We see an, a, a similar kind of example, or at least a an illustration from his own, from a little bit later in his life in Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verses 24 and following. Matthew 17, 24 and following. And, and when they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, Yes. Peter says, Yes. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? 
From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And upon his saying, from strangers, Jesus said to him, Consequently, the sons are exempt. But lest we give offense Lest we give them offense, go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a stater. Take that and give it to them for you and me. What Jesus is saying is that he is a son, not a stranger, and he is therefore exempt from the taxation. But for now, for this time, he is still living under subjection to the ordinances of God and man. And so he will pay the tax. Of course, somewhat miraculously, the way he gets the coinage, to be sure. That kind of idea, I think, is what's going on here in verse 15. Permitted at this time. A day will come when when Messiah will be free to display his glory, but not this day. Not now. At this time, he has to continue to humble himself and, and live as a man among men. And living as a man among men, a deeply pious Jewish man, he submits himself to the God-ordained command of, his, of God's prophet John, and he shows up to be baptized, just like the other believing Jews. Permitted at this time. It's for now. It's the proper thing to do. It's, it's the thing that God requires of us, John. And so John relents and baptizes him. Now, when he baptizes him, all kinds of things begin to happen. There are many results. I have four of them for you this morning. We'll just go through them briefly, and that will lead us into next week where we will come back and concentrate on a couple of them. You can just sort of jot them down. Jesus became, as a result of his baptism, as a result of humbling himself to be baptized, Jesus became identified with the believing remnant of Israel. He became identified with them. He was thus prepared to to take their infirmities and carry away their diseases, according to Matthew 8 and verse 17. Eventually, he would give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, verse 28. He would do so by shedding his blood for their forgiveness, Matthew 26 and verse 28. These are results that come from the baptism. Because of his baptism, the king is now bound up in the life of his subjects. His life is now bound in theirs. He becomes qualified to stand in their place later. Second result, John's now able to clearly point to the one who he's been preaching about. He's able to now turn to Israel and to say, that's the one. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Third, Jesus received the divine authentication of his sonship. 
the divine authentication of his sonship. He is, he is now visibly equipped and commissioned to undertake his messianic mission. Verses 16 and 17 of Matthew 3. After being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water and behold, pay attention, look, Matthew is saying, the heavens were open. Now the heavens don't just open all the time. That is a very rare occurrence, even in the Bible. The heavens are torn open. They part. They open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon Christ. And behold, a voice out of heaven, out of the heavens, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, I told you earlier, I think Jesus was basically alone when this happened. John was there, but he was basically alone. This was not for the benefit of the crowds. This was for the benefit of Jesus and secondarily for John. The events that are narrated here were for primarily the benefit of Jesus. In fact, Luke tells us Jesus was praying when this happened. He was praying when it happened. Heavens are torn open. The Spirit of God descends as a dove upon him. Behold, he hears the voice out of heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is the divine authentication of who he is. It is the visible equipping and commissioning of him to carry out the task that is set before him. at least at a fourth result, he is anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. And it's it's done so that he might fulfill his calling as Israel's Messiah. The Spirit of God comes upon him. It anoints him with power. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and verse 37. Peter is preaching to Cornelius, those that are in his house. He says, 1037, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. Something happened. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now clearly, listen to me, clearly he who was conceived by the Holy Spirit was certainly filled with the Spirit his whole life. But there was something more that happens here. Something much greater, something more significant happens in the man's life. The Spirit of God comes upon him in a very dramatic way. 
And this coming of the Spirit upon Jesus sets him up for what now lies before him. Next week, when we come back, we will zero in on these last two reasons. It is the visible equipping, equipping and commissioning of him to his messianic mission. His divine authentication as Messiah. And it is the anointing with the Holy Spirit and power which enables him to carry out the mission that God has for him. Okay? Now I want you to understand what I'm saying. He knew who he was all along. As he grew in his understanding of the Scriptures, he grew in his understanding of what his mission was. He didn't become the God-man at this moment. He was conceived the God-man. But in his humanity, something very significant happens right here. The Spirit of God comes upon him in a way that equips and enables him to carry out his mission. That should be encouraging. That should be encouraging. And the reason it should be encouraging is because you have a mission. I have a mission. God has saved us for a purpose. Isn't that true? And it's more than just that he desires our fellowship with him in, in glory. The only way we will ever carry out the mission for which we have been saved is by walking in the power of the same Spirit of God who anointed Messiah. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that the manifestation of the Spirit on you will be anything like the level of the Spirit's manifestation on Messiah. But it is the same Spirit. It is the same Spirit, and, and His power is available to you and He is available to me. If we will live a humbled, submitted, God-honoring life, just like Messiah, who is our model. Let's pray. Our Father, we are absolutely on the edge of the most profound of mysteries. There are so many questions of curiosity that we would love to ask and have answered. And yet, O oh Lord, you have, you have deemed in your sovereignty not to reveal those answers to us. And indeed, it's likely that we could not even understand the answers should you give them. But our Father, what we do have, you hold us responsible to both understand and to and to live in obedience to. And so I, I just pray, Father, as we think this week about the humanity of Jesus Christ, that we would be moved, that we would be moved by that reality, and that we would conduct a, a searching examination of our own lives. Father, where do we fall short of following the Savior's model? Reveal these things to us, O Lord, and grant us grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.